Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. I also host the podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, which you can listen to if you need your literary fix fast. This podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, is for anyone out there who wants to feel better in their bodies like I do. There's a private support group that I started on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. And all of us share tips, suggestions, recipes, meal ideas, and generally just give each other lots and lots and lots of support so that it isn't so hard to do what should be simple, but somehow isn't. So please listen to the podcast, hear stories from people just like you who have struggled and overcome things and have ideas and suggestions. And let's just do this together. We got this. Thanks for listening. Judith Finlayson is the author of You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need to Know About Nutrition, Experience, Epigenetics, and the Origins of Chronic Disease. Judith is a best-selling author who has written books on a variety of subjects, from personal well-being and women's history to food and nutrition. A former national newspaper columnist for The Globe and Mail, a magazine journalist, and a board member of various organizations focusing on legal, medical, and women's issues, she is also the author of over a dozen cookbooks. Welcome, Judith. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Thank you for having me. So you are this cookbook author extraordinaire. I don't know how you've written so many cookbooks on so many different topics, but I don't know. I feel like I need to go make some quinoa or farro. I don't know, something. I got to eat healthy today because of you. Tell me a little bit about your latest book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. Okay. As you noted, have written a lot of cookbooks, but before I started writing cookbooks, I was actually a journalist. Food was always my passion and my hobby, and about 20 years ago, I had an opportunity to write a cookbook, and it did very well. So I decided that I would switch careers at that point and start doing cookbooks, which I have been doing for like 20 years. And that got me, because I'm kind of obsessive and interested in whole all kinds of things, that got me really interested in nutrition. And getting interested in nutrition, I became, of course, very interested in the science of nutrition. To kind of make a long story short, a number of years ago, somebody introduced me to the work of David Barker who was a British epidemiologist who got the ball rolling on this whole area of science known as the developmental origins of health and disease. And that ended up being kind of what motivated me to write, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, because I was just blown away by what he was saying. I mean, this was like a paradigm shift in how we were looking at health and wellness. And so I would do things like I'd go to see my doctor and, you know, say, well, have you heard, you know, you know about David Barker? She'd never heard of him. And that kind of story was repeated as, you know, I'd run into medical people and would ask them and whatever, and nobody knew about. So anyway, I wrote, you are what your grandparents ate, which is built around David Barker's work. But of course, since I'm kind of an obsessive once I get going on something, it's become kind of much more than that. And it fits this whole puzzle together of the relationship between our health 
and uh, and a healthy lifestyle and it really shows how we can take control of things one step at a time because i know that your key audience is mothers who don't have time to do anything anymore except get through covid <laughs> and you know so it's it's like you know trying to you you can do it by little steps well, when I first was researching your book, I was getting a bit discouraged because it says your main, the main theory, I guess, from David Barker's work is that the thing, like kind of the sins of the elders are reflected on the youngers, right? That whatever it is that your, your ancestors are not that many generations, but whatever they were doing with their health and fitness and their eating can have long-term consequences, which by the way, now makes me a little bit paranoid about what I'm doing for like, I mean, I guess it's too late. My kids are out there, but what you do has like ripple effects for generations. So I'm trying to think like all those Chessman cookies my grandmother was always eating. Like, I don't know. Is that why I like Pepperidge Farm cookies? I'm kidding. I know it doesn't work exactly like that, but, but this is really profound. It's, it's similar to this theory of like inherited trauma, right? That you can have it almost in your genes. They're linked. They're linked. They're very linked. And as you know, there's a chapter, a whole chapter in the book on stress and on trauma and on the the work that's being done around the inheritance of of that. And they they really, I'll try to give you a capsule of this because there is bad news and then there is some good news too. So I'll I'll try and do both of those in, in one shot. It is transmitted through kind of biological memories. So it's through the sperm cells and through the eggs. And so if you're a pregnant woman and you are pregnant with a, with a female child, those eggs are developing while she is still in your womb. So, you know, the stress you experience, the food you eat, the air that you breathe is having an impact on the quality of those reproductive cells. With males, it's the timing is different. It's around the time of puberty, and that's when sperm cells are forming. So they've done studies that have shown, for instance, that if young boys eat too much uh, around the time of puberty, that their grandsons are more likely to die young, that smoking around the time of puberty is more likely to set up your descendants for things like metabolic illnesses. This is an area, a newer area of research than developmental origins of health and disease. And they're starting to think that there should be a whole thing called paternal origins of health and disease, because of course, it's very easy to blame it all on mother because we're the ones who get pregnant and who have the children and who, you know, get all this, don't drink, don't smoke, all all of which is, you know, fine advice, but it's not all our fault. But anyway, these cells, these reproductive cells come together to form a fetus, a baby, and they carry these biological memories. So that plus whatever happens to a mother's experience while she is pregnant, like poor nutrition, like chronic stress, like toxic exposures, have a profound impact on the fetus, both in terms of affecting how its organs develop, but also in terms of what we call epigenetic changes. So 
you know that you're born with your genes. Your genes are your genes and you can't change them. But how your genes behave is your epigenome and those changes either go up or down, they affect your gene expression. So those things also influence. Particularly in pregnancy, the strong research is showing changes in an epigenetic process known as methylation, which really can influence metabolism. And therefore, if children, you know, a lot of this research came out of the Dutch hunger winter. So that was when women in in Holland who happened to be pregnant were starved when the Germans cut off food to northern Holland. And they found that those children had different rates of of, of methylation, gene expressions related to methylation that predispose them to what they describe as metabolic disturbances. So that's a greater likelihood of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, and of heart disease. That's the bad news. The good news is that these epigenetic changes are really very easily influenced through things like lifestyle adaptations. So by eating a healthy diet, by getting an appropriate amount of exercise, doing things like mindfulness techniques like meditation, yoga, and so on, have also been shown to to improve gene expression. So there's a wide range of things that we can do to address your grandmother's peppers farm cookie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like when a doctor asks, when you're at like a dermatologist and they say, are you predisposed to skin cancer? It means you need to be a little more careful, right? With the sun lotion. So this is a similar thing. If you're, gra- you know, based on what has happened, you may need to pay particular attention to XYZ area. So it's good to know that something perhaps that was not a risk factor is perhaps a risk factor and is not insurmountable, but something you have to pay perhaps particular attention to. Yes, absolutely. And if you want, the last chapter in the book is is on your microbiome. And in a way, that was almost an add-on chapter. I don't quite know. I mean, I've been very interested in the microbiome since it you know, hit the news. It's just the kind of thing that really intrigues me. So I started researching the book and, and you know, it was there and it was something, you know, it was the last chapter and it, it was, and, and over the course of doing the research, I, I became, well, really more and more convinced of the fundamental role of the microbiome in all of this. And in a way, it's, it's the easiest way of starting a solution to this problem. The microbiome is linked with all kinds of biological path, pathways. Your immune system, your mental health through what they call the gut-brain access, and your metabolism. Obese people have different microbiomes than people who are not obese, different ratios of certain types of bacteria. So by adjusting or beginning to take a a movement forward into improving your microbiome, and nobody knows what a perfect microbiome is. And in fact, 
there may not be a perfect microbiome. Your microbiome is really as individual as your fingerprints. But what we do know is that you want as much diversity as possible and you want the good bacteria to really have control. And probably the, the, the easiest way of doing that is by introducing fiber from whole foods, things like whole grains, legumes, or so on. These are known as microbiota accessible carbohydrates, max, and those max really work to improve your ratios of bacteria, and those have a profound effect across your body all over the place. So start, what I like to say, you know, what I like to say, and I'm going to let you get a word in edgewise. And I don't need it. one. No. What, what, I, what I like to say is that, you know, if you're going to do one thing, start with having a good, like, like it's, it's incremental change. You can't do everything all at once. And as you know, mothers, we just can't. And so start by having making yourself a great whole grain breakfast. Oatmeal is really easy to make. If it works for you, put it in the slow cooker before you go to bed at night. It'll be hot and wonderful when you wake up in the morning. Do overnight oats in the refrigerator, whatever. But just that one bowl of whole grain oatmeal is going to be a help to start the process of making a really good change by nourishing all of those lovely, friendly little critters in your gut and helping them to reproduce. So can it be the kind of oatmeal that comes in a packet or do you have to do it on the stove? Like I have oatmeal that I like, that's like flax plus oatmeal from nature's own or something. Is that okay? If it's whole grain oats, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And hasn't been processed. So just read the label, but whole grain oats are, are fabulous and they're, you know, they're, they're not hard to deal with. You can even have granola if you don't want to cook it, you know. So, so. takeaways here for A, what I should do and B, what I should tell my 13-year-old son to do so he doesn't <laughs> ruin everything for his Wait. offspring right now with what he's eating. So for moms who already have passed on these genetic expressions and are dealing with the genetic expressions from our grandparents or parents, A, start the day with whole grains. B, make sure to get plenty of healthy exercise and a whole grain healthy diet. And have a C, have a special note in your head of what perhaps was done in the past and how that might affect you. Just like yeah. you would. Yes. So those are like my three takeaways. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then for the kids who have the ability now to change the biological landscape, if you will, for all of their future offspring, A, boys around puberty need to eat really well and not, not too much, but not too much. Not too much. But very healthy whole foods. Yes. Okay. Well, that'll be a challenge. And then for girls, it already started. So when I was stressed out and pregnant, I've already doomed my girls, essentially. I, I No, you have not. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is there is a systemic component to this because you, you know, you are healthy, you eat well, you take good care of yourself. So the fact that you 
relatively speaking, but I'm sure that it's, you know, you're pulling your eyes, but I'm sure you're- Well, I'm thinking of what I ate when I was pregnant and I don't know, I wouldn't be shouting that from the rooftops as a healthy eating, but anyway, go on. Well, I had had the same thing with my daughter recently who's, who's pregnant. So I understand that. But what I said to her is the same thing that I will say to your audience, which is, you know, you've grown up eating a healthy diet. You have a lot of reserves. So the fact that you're feeling crappy and don't want to eat for, you know, two or three days or whatever is not going to be a problem because the fetus will draw on your reserves. You have lots of reserves because you've had a healthy lifestyle. And they found this with the Dutch hunger winter, usually with in, in situations of malnutrition, One of the things that happens is that the full-term babies are born with with low birth weight, which is actually a a technical term of 5.5 pounds or less. And that is a marker for really ill health. So, you know, you have to watch a a child that's born at that weight closely and, and start intervening. With the Dutch women, they had been very, very well nourished prior to the, the embargo in Germany, uh, or from the Germans, and their babies were born at, at, at full term weight or with a, with a healthy birth weight. So it didn't make as much as a difference to those children as it did to some other children. So you can see in in kind of racialized communities, things like the stroke belt in the Southern US, what you're seeing is generations of poor nutrition and chronic stress. So that those women, if they don't have enough to eat, they don't have enough nourishment for the fetus, when the fetus goes to to the default position, which is drawing off the mother's reserves, there isn't any there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's not the case for all women. So just be aware of that. Okay. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a bowl of, of artisanal granola, which comes with oatmeal, pumpkin seeds, flax seeds, a few nuts. It's seasoned with some great spices. And I have that with a, with a non-dairy milk. So... All right. I could actually do that. I could pull that off. I still haven't had breakfast yet. <laughs> All right. I'm going to try to eat your way. I'm going to f- bump up my oatmeal and granola consumption, which sounds like a very easy task to do. And I just, I find this whole area of research fascinating. And I'm so glad I got to talk to you about it because it's like revolutionary. This way of thinking about transmission of eating, transmission of stress, transmission of of habits and what we can do for like everyone who comes next. I don't know. I think it's just so interesting. So I'm glad to be a beneficiary of your obsessive research today. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Don't forget to follow the private support group at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight on Instagram. Thanks.